The gospel reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18. Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many, many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This ends the reading from the Gospels. You may be seated. Oops. Oh, I do. Thanks. That's all right. Lost a few of the papers here. Jesus had some difficult sayings. Sometimes we want to avoid them in preaching and we want to stay on the more upbeat. And one of the passages that I'm dealing with today, and one that Professor John McIntyre will be dealing with next Monday, are are difficult sayings of Jesus. In the one today, right on the heels of telling the disciples that he is the Christ, affirming Peter's response, Thou art the Christ, Jesus then says, but the Christ must suffer and die and be rejected by all of the people. He completely takes this wonderful moment when Peter, and speaking for all the rest, they're wondering, could this be the Messiah? And, and, and Jesus finally puts the question to him, and Peter blurts out the answer they're all hoping is true. And Jesus, in essence, says, it is true, but your image of what it means to be Messiah must completely undergo a change. And your image of what it means to follow the Messiah must undergo a tremendous change. But let's back up a bit. Let's start where the following began at the beginning of the semester as we explore this idea of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. In a painting by Sadao Watanabe of Japan, we're going to have on the screen, The Calling of Andrew and Peter. 
is a painting where the call begins to follow Jesus Christ. And in this Japanese rendition, you have Jesus coming to the disciples, Peter and Andrew on the shore, or, and he's, he's, he's given them the call. And you'll notice, as we've seen, as we've looked at paintings from various cultures, that each culture has a tendency to interpret the gospel in light of their culture. Part of that being good, because Christ invades every culture and every person that, he, that, he, that will let him in. And so in one sense, that go, that's good. In another sense, it can taint Jesus. We can start thinking of him too much like our culture. But in this case, you see, you have the, the chin hairs on the disciples and the chin hairs on Jesus. The two disciples are in the boat. There are lotus flowers bumping up against the boat. And Jesus has just offered them the call. And their bodies are tense. Their eyes are fixed. One of them, it seems, almost is reaching out to hold the hand of Jesus. And you'll notice all around them are fish in this mosaic painting. All around them are, are fish. They were fishermen. I think these fish in the artist's mind represent the dreams of those fishermen, the business that they had, the very boat that they stand in is part of that vision. The very hired hands who are not in this picture, but we know that they, they had a, a fairly thriving business with uh, four of the early disciples, two of them being the sons of Zebedee. They had this business, and now Jesus has come along, and he's given them the command, follow me, and I'll make you fishers, but not like you're dreaming of it, these fish in the sky behind them. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, following tends to mean leaving something behind. They cannot stay in the boat and also follow Jesus. They can't keep one foot in and one foot out. Jesus said you can't be loyal to two masters. You're bound to hate the one and love the other or support the one and despise the other. And so it almost looks like the apostles here holding hands with each other, trying to get up the courage to step out of the boat and follow Jesus. But in order to step out of the boat, their dreams of many, many fish and many, many business deals with fish have got to be left behind. What would the painting be like for professors? We might have an office painted here, and there might be books circling over them. Essays, research, test tubes. What would we do if it was a business person? We might have, instead of the fish over, it might be today, it might have more to do with CD-ROMs and transactions in the Internet or real estate deals. If they were stockbrokers, we might have to paint portfolios all up around them. The call to follow Jesus Christ is in some sense a call to leave something behind. And it does seem to be that there is a line drawn in the sand. And they're given the call, and then they can either follow or not follow. This painting by uh, Watanabe of Japan, it painted in 1970, actually a seriograph, uh, which is a silk screening process, calls us to ask the question, where are you? Are you still in the boat? Are you still holding on to the dreams that you want to have your life be all about? 
Well, there's no question in the life of Jesus Christ that a disciple of Jesus, male or female, needs to leave behind the dreams, the plans, all of those fish in the sky and step out of the boat completely. Now, the question remains, would that disciple be able to go back to the boat? If we look at church history, sometimes they can. Sometimes the call of Jesus is to step right back into the same boat. Other times it's to cut it off completely and never step back. But every disciple is asked to let go of everything to follow Jesus. I'd like to have us show a second slide here by a painter who's becoming one of my favorites. And that is Jose de Ribera. This, uh, my research assistant chose this painting, and she said that it is her favorite painting of the face of Christ. Let me read what she wrote to me. I chose this painting to remind us that Jesus cannot just be another. I chose simply his face to remind us that he is more central than anything. He is the person, the God, that we must lean towards. The God in whose absence we grow empty and despairing. Look at the painting. His eyes hold intelligence. His mouth, a slight smile. His face is pale yet robust and very mysterious. You, you don't quite know what he's thinking. Every time I see this painting of Jesus, I'm reminded that he really was a man. That he really walked this earth. And that I can know him, and beyond that, that he knows me. He aches with humanity in this painting. And his eyes demand that we put him before all else. It is a haunting painting, isn't it? It is a haunting painting. He reaches out to us with those eyes, those eyes that must have looked at Peter and Andrew and and John, and the rest, and Mary, and Joanna, and Susanna, those eyes that must have looked out and said, leave the boat behind, leave the house behind, leave all behind, and make me central. I may give it back to you, and I may not. There are no guarantees. You remember that great scene in the Narnia Chronicles, when Jill finally meets the lion, Aslan, the Christ figure in the, silver, in the book, The Silver Chair. And she sees this lion, and she's been left all alone in this far country, and she's scared to death, a little girl in this mysterious land of magic that she's been swept up into, much, much beyond her imagining. And all she knows is that her best friend who was with her has now fallen off a cliff to his death, and now she's face to face with a huge lion. And the lion says to her, if you're thirsty, you may come and drink. There's a stream and he's lying on this side of the stream. And she's dying of thirst. And she's never heard a lion speak. And she takes a step closer. And, and she says, uh, 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 Sir, um, uh, do you uh, eat girls? It's a good question. And he says, I've swallowed up empires and kingdoms. Leaders and servants. Men and women, boys and girls. And Lewis adds, he did not say this as if he were boasting or as if he were angry. 
He just said it. And she said she took a step closer because she kept hearing the water ripple and she was dying of thirst. And there's this lion and she gets a little bit closer and she says, um, if I come, will you promise not to do anything? And he says, I make no promises. Oh, dear, she says. And she's trying to think what to do. By this time, her her thirst is driving her crazy. She's frantic to get to the water. But this lion, who will make no promises, and who has told her that he's swallowed up not just girls and boys, but empires, whatever that might mean, is there between her and what she desires and needs. And C.S. Lewis says she made the most awful decision of her life, but she ran for the stream. She scooped up the water, thinking that she would have to scoop up lots before she was eaten by the lion. But as soon as just a little dash of it hit her lips, she was completely satisfied. And she looked up, and there was the lion all around her in his motionless bulk. He didn't eat her up, but he did give her a task. A task that the rest of the book is all about. A task that would take her through many hardships and pain and call out impatience and endurance and long-suffering and all kinds of virtues she hadn't even begun to develop in her life. But she had to first run through the lion to get to the stream. And it's the same with Jesus Christ. As you look at this face, there's no way to the Father, according to Jesus, except through him. And there's no way through him except by a complete abandonment of who you are. Jesus said it in the passage we looked at today. He said, if anybody wants to follow me, they first of all must deny themselves. Now, I can't think of anything harder for our culture to consider. On the internet, on the television... At the, at the movies, even before the movies now, we are filled with advertisements that tell us, don't deny yourself anything. You deserve it all. You deserve a break today. You deserve the real thing, which, of course, we all know is a Coca-Cola. You deserve it. Go out and get it. Just do it. Every message of our society is saying the exact opposite of what Jesus said when he said, I want you to follow me. And in order to do that, first thing you've got to do is deny yourself. And then the second thing you've got to do is pick up a cross. Now, I've got to explain something here. We have tended in our culture to think of the cross as suffering. But that's not how they thought of it in the first century. A person who picked up his or her cross didn't come back. It was like saying, pick up your gas chamber. Pick up your lethal injection. In fact, in this passage in Luke, Jesus says, pick up your cross daily, which is sort of a contradiction in terms. The person picking up their cross didn't have another day to go. They, the one thing you knew was that they would be dead by sunset. So when Jesus turns to the disciples, right at this tremendous moment where he's told them he is the Messiah, they're right, they've done right to follow him, he then turns and says, but anyone who would follow me must deny himself daily, deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and then continue following me. Paul later said in a similar statement, 
I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified. There is no Paul left. It's Jesus living through me. Those are tough words. We would like a simpler message. We would like a message that says we can follow Jesus Christ and keep our feet in the boat. And it does raise us tough questions, doesn't it? If everybody gets out of the boat, who's going to fish? What are we going to have to eat? If everybody leaves business to go to the mission field, who's going to, who's going to keep the infrastructure going? Who's going to deliver the mail? Who's going to build the homes that we live in? Is Jesus saying everyone is supposed to, that, that it's wrong to fish, that it's wrong to have boats, that it's wrong to do business? No, he's not saying that. He's saying it's wrong to cling to anything but him. He's saying that we're meant to live our lives not with clenched fists around our desires, our plans, and our goals, but with open hands. We looked at a painting last time I was preaching by Caravaggio, The Calling of St. Matthew. You'll remember the painting. Jesus is standing there, and he's reached out his finger, and he's pointing to Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, is over at his tax booth, and he's like this, sort of saying, Me? And other people are around him, and they haven't even looked up to see Jesus because they're so intent counting their money. And it was a moment frozen in time, like the moment in the boat where the disciples had to decide, will we hold hands, reach out, grab Jesus' hand, and make the step out of the boat, or will we stay? And in Caravaggio's painting, it was St. Matthew who was at that moment, me, what, me? You want me to leave? And Jesus' eyes, these eyes are saying, yes, I want you to leave. I want you to leave it all behind. Whether I give it back to you or not is not up to you because when you come and follow me, you die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in a famous opening to his book, The Cost of Discipleship, said this, perhaps the most quoted line by Bonhoeffer. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him, come and die. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Well, what can this total surrender mean? What could Jesus have in mind? I've been sharing quotes with you this semester after the passing away of Mother Teresa. I've been sharing some of her thinking with you as a tribute to her, though I haven't said that. And I want to share one more that I think deals with this question. This is what she says. The spirit of our society, that is, the Sisters of Charity, is one of total surrender, loving trust, and cheerfulness, as lived by Jesus and Mary in the Gospel. Our total surrender to God means to be entirely at the disposal of the Father as Jesus and Mary were. Our total surrender to God means to be entirely at the disposal of the Father. In giving ourselves completely to God, because God has given himself to us, we are entirely at his disposal. Number one, to be possessed by him so that we may possess him. Number two, to take whatever he gives and to give whatever he takes. 
with a big smile. Number three, to be used by him as it pleases him without being consulted ourselves. And number four, to offer him our free will, our reason, our whole life in pure faith so that he may think his thoughts in our minds, do his work through our hands, and love with our hearts. That is a profound statement. Total surrender. To be completely at the disposal of Jesus Christ and the Father. I mentioned the artist Caravaggio. I'd like to show you another painting of his. And actually, it's the segment of a painting of his. The painting is called Madonna de Rosario, Madonna of the Rosary. And we focused in on one part of this picture for a reason. The rosary, which most Protestants don't know about, originally was a method of memorizing scripture. Each bead represented a scripture. It was sort of the navigator's topical memory system. And each scripture, each bead would be a scripture that the people would memorize because they were illiterate when this came up and it was a way to teach the scriptures. It later became used as a, as a prayer, uh, as certain prayers said to Mary, a Roman Catholic tradition, not a Protestant tradition. But in this picture, what I want to point out is an image that I think is a beautiful image, that I think the artist was trying to get across, that we're meant to live a life of prayer, centered in the scriptures, but our hands are supposed to be open. They're not clinging the prayers. They're not clinging to the plans. They're open. It's an attitude of being at the disposal of another. Lord, what would you have me do, those hands seem to say. Lord, who would you have me be, the hands seem to say. Lord, where would you have me go, the hands seem to say. Lord, when do you want me to do this, the hands seem to say. And I would say this is the exact opposite stance of our culture. Our culture says, hold on, cling to it, plan it, control it, manage it, eke out every little bit from it, maximize it, hold on at all costs. And Jesus says, no, I want you to let go at all costs. Now the amazing thing is that a promise comes with this from Jesus. When he was speaking in Luke 9, and he said that he was indeed the Messiah, and that uh, his followers would have to pick up a cross, that is, die to themselves daily and follow him, he also said this, For whosoever wants to save his life will lose it, and whosoever loses his life for me will save it. I think he meant that literally to the disciples, almost all of whom, all but one, would literally physically lose their lives for following Jesus. But I think he meant it more than literally. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul or his very self? The goal of holding on to the whole world, the goal that you're taught from day one, is the goal of life to die with the most toys, to get the most things, to be the most secure, to be completely independent of anyone. No, Jesus is saying, 
I want you to live a life of dependence on me and interdependence on my family, the family of Jesus. And then he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here today will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Many people have puzzled over that passage, but if they read the next sentence... The next sentence talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. When, when Moses and Elijah came and visited him on that mountain, and some of those were right there, and they saw the glory of the kingdom, indeed that prophecy became true. I don't think it's until we open our hands like this that we can live with our hands up in the air praising God. And I'd like for us to look at Caravaggio's other painting here which is a a section of that painting which we've uh, centered on. The The painting is called Deposition. And those hands are hands of joy. Those hands are hands of adventure. Those hands are hands of celebration. Those are hands full of excitement. Those are hands looking into the future, not into the past. Those are hands full of joy at the moment. But they first had to be hands that let go of something. There are two people I'd like to illustrate this with from the gospel in closing. The one person is the rich young ruler. You'll remember he was rich, one gospel writer tells us. He was young, they all tell us. He was a ruler, one of the other gospel writers tell us. We learned that from all three of the accounts, the synoptic gospels. He had it all. He was rich, lots of things to hold on to. He was young. As I was watching the soccer games on Saturday, I had to, at 48 or 9, whatever the heck I am, I think 48, I thought, oh, to be young again, to be able to run like that. It was so fun to watch. This guy had that. He was strong. He was young. He was rich. And he was powerful. It doesn't get much better than that. And Jesus said, you're doing... And he had a heart for God. He said he kept all the commandments since he was very young. And Jesus didn't dispute it with him. He just said, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And the rich, young, powerful ruler walked away crestfallen. And he's one of the few people I know of in the Gospels. Perhaps the Apostle John is the only other one of which it specifically says Jesus loved him. Now we know Jesus loved everybody. But something must have transpired there that the the writers of the Gospel caught in those eyes of Jesus. And they must have oh. When that man walked away with all of his things and all of his power and all of his youth, there was something in Jesus that went out to him because he knew that real life meant coming to the stream. Real life meant being possibly eaten up by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Real life meant letting go of those things. And he saw this man going back to his things, back to a cramped and a narrow life. The second person I'd like to illustrate this with is the opposite. He was a small man. He was Zacchaeus. Remember him? He climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. It says because he was very short. I like to think that that was because Jesus was very short. But at any rate, 
He's up in the tree, and he has a lot of things too, he, but they're not quite the same things except riches. He did have riches. He was a tax collector. But he also had hatred and rejection of his people. And he was a small man. He was narrow. He, 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 but he had a heart that wanted to be about God. It is hard to see. It was tarnished, to be sure. He wasn't as handsome or, or, or as uh, good a candidate for the kingdom as the rich, young ruler. But Jesus looked up in the sycamore tree and said, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to have supper at your place today. And that small invitation, which really was not small, it was a statement of acceptance and tenderness and belief by Jesus. I believe in you, Zacchaeus, even though you've betrayed your people. I believe there's something better in you. If you'll just jump out of the tree, if you'll just let go of that. Zacchaeus jumps out and takes Jesus to dinner in his home and then says, look, if I've cheated anyone, I'll pay him back four times. And the crowd were thinking, if you cheated anyone? And I'll give half my goods to the poor. Well, by the time he'd paid everybody back four times, that would have taken up easily half of his goods, and the other half he gave to the poor. And that man went away empty-handed like this. But his hands quickly went up like this in joy. Don't be like the rich young ruler. You guys are young. You don't think you're rich, but you are. And you have power. You may not know it now, but you do. Don't be like the rich young ruler. Don't hold on to wealth and hoard it. Don't hold on to power and love it. Let go. Give it to Jesus Christ. Step out of that boat. Open your hands. And then your hands will go up like this. He may give it some of it back to you. He may give all of it back to you. He may triple it and give it back to you. But it's none of your business. He's the Lord. You're the follower. Let's pray. Father, these words of your Son call us to the opposite of control. Call us to the opposite of arrogance. And call us into a disposition of humility and into an emptiness where we willfully, voluntarily, for love of you, let go rather than cling on. Father, I pray that some of these dear friends this morning, students or guests or faculty, staff, myself, I pray that we might more fully turn our hands palm upwards. That we might let go of the many things that we're trying to hold on to so desperately. And that we might entrust them and ourselves to be at your disposal. To live for you completely and totally. Father, we take a moment to just be quiet and to consider the things that may be keeping us from living at your disposal. May we take whatever he gives and give whatever he takes with a big smile. May we be used by him as it pleases him without being consulted. 
And may we offer him our free will, our reason, our whole life in pure faith, so that he may think his thoughts in our minds. Do his work through our hands and love with our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.